I love the prayer that that, uh, the point that Steve was praying about. um, Not only that my words would be accurate, absolutely, uh, that that would be my heart. But that God would create new worshipers of himself. That's what he would bring. Not just people to be saved, but to become worshipers. In, in Romans 1, which has been a part of our study over this past year, uh, the, the book of Romans, that is, um, as we've been going through this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and yes, we are in chapter 7 today. So as we've been going through that, right from chapter 1, the whole point is that we want to be on the throne of our lives, not God. So we want to, instead, we want to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That is our default. That is our bent. How do we get out of that? How do we become transformed by the renewing of our minds? What is God doing inside of us? That's part of what Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all about. Romans 6 and 7 are about sin. You okay with that? Anybody ever have a problem with that? Yeah, yeah. Probably some of you are thinking, "Yeah, the person sitting next to me does." <laughs> this is this is all this is this is a part of our past. It's a part of our present, and actually, it's a part of our future until either we die or until Jesus returns. So, what can we do about the sin that stains our past? Nothing. Jesus took it. He absorbed it into himself on the cross and paid the penalty for those sins. They are gone. And when we celebrate the Lord's table in a few moments, it's because Jesus paid it all. Sir John Ruskin was one of the great art critics in a a century and a half ago in Victorian England. And one day a lady who was visiting with him mentioned she was writing something and she got an ink blot on an expensive handkerchief. And uh, she was just mentioned, well, it's ruined now. And she started to throw it away. And uh, Ruskin said, uh, asked if he could have it instead. And uh, she was puzzled, but said, okay, yeah, sure. And she gave it to him. A few days later, he sent it back. But it was so different that she didn't recognize it because that ink blot had become the focus of a beautiful design that transformed something utterly worthless and unusable, and unusable, fit only to be discarded into something beautiful, something that was transformed, something that got framed and, and was looked at as a picture of redemption and restoration. And that's what God does with our past sins. What about our present sins or even our future sins? Well, the message of Romans 6, as we have been studying through this chapter, is we're not who we used to be, so we can't live the way we used to live. And the focus there is on our identity in Christ. And and here's the the deal. Every morning, we, we struggle with this. Every morning, we get up. And as we get up, let me just suggest to you that you have a coronation ceremony every morning. Displace yourself from the throne of your lives and enthrone Jesus. He is to be on the throne of your lives. That, that coronation ceremony every morning as you're getting out of bed. King Jesus on the throne. Now these chapters in Romans 6 and 7 and especially chapter 8 
are about the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, Sanctification is a five-syllable theological word. And it's found eight times in the New Testament. It wasn't created to describe something. It's in the Bible. Uh, Look at chapter 6, verse 19 for a moment. So if you're at chapter 7, flip back to Romans 6, 19. Do you see the phrase resulting in sanctification? Look up at verse 22, 622, resulting in sanctification. In these chapters, Paul lays down foundational biblical knowledge. Knowledge doesn't cause us to grow, but knowledge is the foundation that we rest on to grow. Jesus doesn't say sanctify them by their feelings or by their emotions. He says sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. So that is the foundation on which we are to grow. Good, solid, biblical knowledge. I mean, look at chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know? Chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this. Chapter 6, verse 9. Knowing. Verse 11. Consider yourselves. Verse 16. Do you not know? Now look at chapter 7. Look at how it begins. Do you not know? (laughs) That's how it starts. That's the foundation on which we are looking at how to grow as a believer. And that that foundation of knowledge just continues all the way up through chapter 12, verse 2, where we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that's the process that we're engaged in. And in these chapters, our minds are being recalibrated about who Jesus is, about what Jesus has done, about how we're to understand grace, about how we're to understand law, and about how our identity in Christ is to transform us so that we are becoming who we are in Christ. The word sanctification means to make holy, to make holy. That's what it means. And in Romans 6 through 8, it refers to being progressively saved from sin's power in the middle moment of our lives. Let me explain what I mean by that, because actually the term when it's used Across the Bible is actually broader than what I'm talking about right here. More broadly, uh, what, what I did was I, I tried to put this together in a chart uh, and, and put that into your bulletin notes. So if take, take your bulletin notes, have the spiritual gift of charts. Take a look at your bulletin notes because there are different ways of understanding what this doctrine looks like. Look at the left-hand column. In the past, we were saved, and our position now is that we have been regenerated or justified. We have been saved from sin's penalty. We are eternally in the presence of God. We are eternally secure in that. Look at the column on the far right. In the future, we will be saved, and that is when we are glorified, and sin's presence is no longer a part of our lives And we are with the Lord forever. But we live in this middle moment, the one that's labeled present, where we are being saved. Our sanctification is in progress and in process, where we are gradually, over time, being saved from sin's power. That's where we live. That's what Romans 6 through 8 is about. Or to look at it differently, you want to know God's will for your life? Every once in a while I hear that. I'd like to know God's will for my life. Well, here it is. 
For this is God's will for you, your sanctification. First Thessalonians 4, 3. Only this one was given, this command was given in the context of a sex-soaked culture about sexual immorality. I'll read it again. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, it applies to every aspect of our lives, our sex lives, our thought lives having to do with business, having to do with relationships, having to do with everything that you are engaged in. There's no compartment of your lives that, are, that is not to be touched by God's plan for sanctification for you. Now, God's will, you'll notice, it doesn't say God's will is your salvation. It doesn't say that. Salvation is just the first step. God's will is your sanctification. God saved you not so that you could check something off a card and say, okay, I'm there. I'm done. Done. We are redeemed so that we can grow to become like Jesus Christ. It's not that I'm done. It's now I'm begun. I've, I've just started this journey. Salvation is not the end. It's the beginning. We're born again, right? Born from above. And therefore, we are to grow and not stay babies. All too often, uh, it's possible for a church to get sidetracked into thinking that our mission is evangelism. No, that's the first step. And in some places, even everything is about getting people to go forward and be saved. Having an altar call in a worship service is, is actually a new thing in church history. It started in the 1850s. Biblically, our mandate is not evangelism, but make disciples, making disciples. Here was, again, let me just make sure I'm clear about this. Salvation is not the end. Salvation is the beginning. And it's the beginning of the journey of sanctification. Now, here we are in this middle moment. If you were saved, that first column is now applied to you. You are now God's child eternally. And now in this middle moment, we live our lives until we're with the Lord and we move into that third column, that final moment. But in this middle moment, I've got a problem. Here's my problem. Look at chapter 7, verse 17. Sin which dwells in me. Look at verse 20. Sin which dwells in me. <laughs> Look at verse 23. Sin which is in my members. And because of that struggle in this middle moment, we need to think rightly about how to reduce sin's power as we grow to be more like Jesus Christ. Now, here's the bad news. And hold your place here. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Here's the bad news. As long as we live in this middle moment, we will never arrive spiritually. We will never become sinless. Look at 1 John chapter 1, starting with verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But here's the good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
That's why when John mentioned this, we hadn't talked about this, but when he mentioned it in the in our in the singing portion of our worship service, my ears went right up. Here it is. This is what it says in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So don't sin. But then he continues. And when you do. (laughs) And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I'm going to stop at that point and go back uh, to Romans 7. So now just because we know we will sin, we're going to blow it. That does not make sin less sinful. But it does mean that we can confess our sins and receive forgiveness and that every day is a new day as we take up our cross daily to follow him. I've said many times, I can't live the Christian life tomorrow. I can only live it today. And that is such good news. That is great news. Because that's all he expects of me. To live for him today. And each day is a new today. And each morning is a new day for a coronation ceremony to put King Jesus on the throne of my life as I deal with sin which dwells in my members in this middle moment of sanctification. So the the good news is as we grow in him and walk with him, we shed sins that we come to realize have no value in our lives at all. Um. I used to have a foul mouth. And I don't anymore. That's gone. Uh, get kicked out of class. Um, you know, when I, I went to Baylor when it was a, an all-boys military school, and it was really hard to uh, be given weekend detention for a foul mouth there in that context in those days. But I did. So told my parents and they didn't believe it. It's, it was really kind of funny. Well, my dad did. My dad believed it. But that's gone. There are other sins I'm working on <laughs> when they're not working on me. Since the sin of racism is in the news because of Charlottesville, um, I love the statement by former slave trader John Newton, who was wonderfully saved and came out of that life. And he he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace that we're familiar with. But John Newton became a, a, a powerful preacher in England, one of the leaders in that slavery abolition movement. But he wrote this. Listen to this. You'll love this. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not what I was. In this middle moment of sanctification, here's a way of of looking at it. That sanctification is living a life that requires explanation. How about that? Living a life that requires explanation because it's not explainable in terms of you. Because the way that you live your life points beyond you to the Lord. That's why Peter said, be able to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you when someone asks you to do that, because they will ask you to do that, because you're living a life that requires an explanation. So that's the big picture. Back to Romans 
7. And in fact, dipping back into chapter 6, the Apostle Paul's been using analogies. And 6 and 7 are all kind of part of a unit. He's been using analogies. In in 6.19, he says, I am speaking in human terms. He's letting us know. I'm using analogies here so that I can capture eternal truth for you in a way that you can understand it within your culture. And so he used the illustration of slavery and he uses the illustration of uh, of baptism. And in chapter seven, what we're going to be looking at today, he uses the illustrations of marriage and life and death and categories that we can understand because he wants us to get this. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? So that's where he's taken this. And I haven't even talked about the two extremes that we're about to look at in chapter 7. There, there's one extreme called legalism and there's another extreme called license. Both of those are how not to grow as a Christian. Both of them are clear extremes and examples of how not to grow. How not to be sanctified. And both will kill your growth, will lead to spiritual death. And because on both of them, Jesus is displaced on the throne of the life of your life and you're there on top of it. So today's passage has has two sections and in Romans seven, one to six. The point is, I am set free in Christ from the law. Here's what legalists need to know. The law will kill you. It will destroy your growth. It will it will. Uh, remove any assurance of salvation that you have in your spirit. If you use the law as a good luck charm, some means of earning greater standing before God by checking items off of a spiritual checklist, usually in forms uh, in the form of rules and regulations, thou shalt not. We add them to the Christian life. You know, if you do those things, if you don't do those things, God is more pleased with you. That's the way of the Pharisees. That's not how you earn standing with God. We are in Christ by grace. Now, that's what the legalists need to know. In verses 7 through 12, the libertines need to know that you have been set free from sin, not set free to sin, but set free from sin. From sin. And if you ignore God's law and throw it away, the baby out with the bath, You ignore the holiness that is embedded in God's law. So much of the Old Testament. And then you're living in a way that's directly opposed to the holiness of God. That's kind of an echo of chapter 6. Shall we sin all the more so that grace may increase? It's just an insane way of thinking. So in both cases, with the legalists and with the licentiousness, the libertines, in both cases, you're on the throne and Jesus is off the throne. The legalist is his own king. He's moved the Christian life from the realm of grace into the realm of works. And of course, he decides which rules are the important rules. And they're usually the ones he doesn't struggle with too much. The libertine is also his own king because he takes the easy way of saying, hey, I'm saved by grace. I can ignore God's law and live however I want. Maybe somebody would say, hey, I walked the aisle at age seven. I'm in. Doesn't matter how I live. That was my story. And I was not saved. Now, neither one of these extremes is what 
sanctification is biblically. Sanctification takes place when God is on the throne. God has to be on the throne. And that's the only way that you and I will ever live a life that requires explanation. Okay, verses 1 through 6. And we are, we are going to be going at a little bit warp speed through these verses because much of what we're about to read has already been nailed down in chapter 6 and some of it back in chapter 2. So the concepts uh, we, are things that we've already wrestled with. And, and I'm going to hit some of the highlights that carry the points along. Verse 1, do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. And verse 7 makes it clear that the law of Moses is at least included in the word law here. But the meaning is larger. All systems of law are included. Do you not know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Pretty obvious, right? If a hearse is on the way to a cemetery... And just indulge me here with my illustration. If a, if a hearse is on the way to the cemetery and uh, the flashing lights are not turned on and a policeman pulls him over, does the policeman get out of, uh, of his vehicle, take his ticket book, and instead of going up to the driver, open the back of the hearse, pull out the casket, open the lid of the thing, and give the corpse a ticket? Gary, that's insane. And that's the point. Now, Paul has his own illustration that's a lot better than the one I just gave you. Look at verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. That is the, the moral duties, the responsibilities of the marriage covenant. She's released from that when he's dead. So then if while the husband is living... She is joined, and he means joined sexually, to another man in violation of the covenant. She shall be called an adulteress. But if the husband dies, she's free from those covenant responsibilities, free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. That means if she is joined in marriage to another man. Now, there are a lot of jokes, very inappropriate jokes, in poor taste about marriage and death. And I, I have a really juicy one. But see, I'm going to resist temptation. You can see me in the foyer. Paul is not talking about marriage and biblical guidelines for death and divorce or any of those things. He's giving a duh illustration. The marriage covenant applies to those who are alive. And those obligations do not apply after death. So the principle is death liberates from law. Any law. Dead men are released from the law. And here's the example in verses 2 and 3. Death liberates from the law of marriage. So the point is we've been liberated from the law of the, the, the law as a system to keep in order to gain any kind of favor or standing with God. We've been liberated from law in Christ. He has liberated us. Look at verses 4 through 6. Therefore, my brethren, you, were also, you also were made, to die, were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that is, dead to sin in chapter 6, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. In chapter 6, you've been made alive in Christ. This is where he used the illustration of our identity. We were baptized in Christ. 
going into the water, coming out looking like him in order that we might bear fruit for God. And you notice he doesn't say in order that we might be saved, but that we might be fruitful. Legalism may look fruitful on the outside, but it has no lasting value. Verse five continues for while we were in the flesh. and he's, He's talking here about in our unsaved state while we were in the flesh. Uh, The sinful passions, our sin natures, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now, you notice in the previous verse, fruit for God, now fruit for dead, for death. Our sinful passions were aroused. In what sense? Because when I look at God's law in my flesh, in my sinful nature, and God tells me, do this, or God tells me, don't do that, I bristle. And that goes back to Genesis 3. When Satan approached Eve and said, excuse me, you mean to tell me that God told you no? And focused entirely on the negative, And that's what sin does. Temptation focuses on the fact that God tells us no. Or tells us do this when we don't want to do it. So it, it's just, it's, a, a, it's a, a crazy way of thinking. But that's what the law does. It arouses that rebellion within us. Verse 6 But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And my friends, that verse could be a series of sermons in itself. We might serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And he's going to get into what that means, what it looks like in chapter 8. I have an actual application for a, uh, attending a youth conference. This is over 20 years old. I kept it in my file. Uh, this, okay. Make sure you get this. Youth conference. Youth conference. There are a list of... It's, a, it's something that all the youth are supposed to sign before they go. Um, and uh, there are 15 items on here. And it lists... And about after every one, you know, video games... Uh, dress code uh, and then a whole list of things violators will be sent home immediately no shaving cream battles this is number five no shaving cream battles water balloon fights ice fights toothpaste wars fireworks etc violators will be sent home Uh, violators will be sent home violators will be I'm just reading down no pushing shoving throwing uh, persons into a swimming pool. Violators will be sent home. No peeping through bathroom windows. I'm just reading. Violators will be sent home. Anyone found in restricted areas will be. Yeah. Um, every camper is expected to do certain work assigned, and if they don't, that will result in they all, they will be sent home. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They will lose their free time. Lose their free time. Okay. Um, Here's a curfew. And violators will be sent home. Okay. Uh, You'll be held personally responsible for any destruction property. Violators will be sent home. Okay. Uh, And any young person who insists on violating camp rules and regulations will be sent home by bus at his or her parents' expense. The theme of the conference is building godly relationships. 
I'm, I'm reading. I'm reading. The theological foundation of the conference will be the doctrines of grace. Instead of trying to keep the law, we rest in the arms of one who kept the law perfectly and died for us in our inability to keep the law. Does that boggle your mind? You've been set free from any authority over you that can ever do you any eternal harm. And we were producing fruit for death, but now... And, and whatever good works we did were not redemptive, but now that's been changed. And we're to bear fruit for life. I gave you an illustration three weeks ago. I'm just going to repeat it because I think it's right on the point. A widower with two small children hires a housekeeper. He tells her what to cook. He tells her how to keep house, how he wants the children dressed, how, what their schedules are supposed to be. Uh, but let's say over time, they fall in love and they get married. The relationship is entirely on a different basis. They now delight to please each other. And she may and will do the same things that she did before. But now she does them out of love, not duty. Now she does them out of grace, not law. And in fact, now she probably does them even more diligently than before because she loves more deeply. As one person put it, If we fall in love with Jesus and walk in the spirit deliberately, we will fulfill the law accidentally. But that's not the focus. How can the law of Moses save? No. Can the law of Moses sanctify? No. So legalism is wrong. That's how not to be sanctified. Part one. Very quickly, let's look at at the at the rest of the passage, starting with verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now, before I get to the next part of that. Okay, wait for it. Is the law sin? How did that? How do we get to that question? Well, I'm going to. Here's my shortcut to it. First, in Christ, you died to law. Verses one through six. Second, in Christ, you died to sin. The wages of sin is death. So you died to law. You died to sin. So is the law sin? And that's what verses 7 through 12 are about. So you know where I'm going with the answer that he's going to give, don't you? Is the law sin? May it never be. What a ghastly thought. No, 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 no. Oh, you are so out of practice. May it never be. What a ghastly thought. No, 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 no. If you want to know what that's about, if you are a visitor here today then uh, you need to come to family camp. (laughs) All right. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. That, That is, he means it's dormant. The law became the launching place for a deeper awareness in my soul of what sin looks like. Sin is now defined in ways that are very clear and in ways that I cannot rationalize or explain away or uh, say, well, that's not really sin. No, sin is shown to be sin. 
And these verses describe how we're just wired in the flesh and how even after salvation, we're still wired that way. And we're in the process of getting new circuitry in this middle moment. But as long as we keep those old circuits open, we struggle and we always will. Later, Paul's going to talk about that sin that dwells in me, sin that dwells in me, sin that dwells in my members. But I'm wired to do what I shouldn't do and to want to do what I know I shouldn't want to do. I mean, when I see a wet paint sign on a bench, I want to know, does it still apply? And I want to know, does it still apply to me? And I want to figure out, could I get Lewis to sit on it? <laughs> so, all right, verses, verses 9 through 11, if you want to call this a murder mystery, you can because somebody gets killed. Who killed Paul? Okay, the wages of what is death? The wages of law is death? No, the wages of sin is death. Sin is what kills. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And the commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now, Paul's not saying that before he truly knew the law, he was sinless. That contradicts everything we've studied in chapters 1 to 3. All have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. What I think he means is this. While he was, when he was trying to earn his way to heaven by being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, his inaccurate understanding of God's law allowed him to live in the illusion that he was okay with God. Sin deceived him into a wrong interpretation of the law in which he was God's top dog, Pharisee of Pharisees. But once he saw God's word for what it was, he was a dead dog. Listen to Philippians chapter 3. Just listen, though I myself may have confidence in the flesh. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness, which is in the law, in that in that sense of being deceived by it, found blameless. That's what I thought of myself. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. They're rubbish. And he uses the illustration in this passage of coveting, I think because it's an internal sin. Of the Ten Commandments, the first one and the tenth one are internal and cannot be seen. They're a matter of the heart. Well, they're all a matter of the heart. But somebody could follow behind me and validate and prove me guilty in a court of law of commandment number two, that I'm an idolater. Number three, taking God's name in vain. Number four, not keeping the Sabbath. Number five, mistreating my parents. Number six, murder. Number seven, adultery. Number eight, stealing. Number nine, accusing someone falsely. 
All of those could be verified and, and uh, could be, I, they could be proven against me with evidence. But the first one about loving God, and Jesus dealt with the rich young ruler about that one. The first one, loving God, having no other gods before you, is a matter of the heart. And the tenth one about coveting is an internal one. It's a matter of the heart. Both those two commandments are internal and they nail us as sinners. So then, the law is holy. The commandment is righteous, holy and righteous and good. Sin is ugly. The law is beautiful. We'll pick it up there next time. But remember what David said. Oh, how I love your law. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. I love the law. One person wrote, just as an x-ray is not a tumor simply because it reveals a tumor, the law is not sin because it reveals sin. So, okay, let's kind of pull together some of these strands. While the legalist in verses 1 to 6 needs to know what the purpose of the, of the law was not, lest he abuse it, the libertine in verses 7 through 12 needs to know what the purpose of the law is, lest he neglect it. Both are examples of how not to grow spiritually. In both of them, you're on the throne and not Jesus. So we leave this passage right in the middle of this important discussion. There's most more to be said before we get to chapter 8 where we'll get some more concrete answers. I've told you before that God has given us three resources for spiritual growth. Three, like a three-legged stool. Three resources. The Word of God over us. The body of Christ around us. And the Holy Spirit within us. Those are our three resources. The word of God over us. It's authority. The body of Christ around us. Remember, we are members of one another for mutual encouragement. For strength. And the Holy Spirit within us. And that's what Romans chapter 8 is about. The Holy Spirit within us. Don't ignore any one of those three component parts for your spiritual growth. So every morning before you get up. Have that coronation ceremony. Lord, I'm off the throne. You're on. I want your word over me. I want the body of Christ around me for encouragement, mutual growth. And that's what this table is about. The body of Christ around you. And I want the Holy Spirit within me, guiding me, forming me, changing me. Why should I want to grow? Because we're becoming like our Father. God says, you're mine. I died for you. I love you. You're my child. I adopted you. Not just so that you can say you're adopted and have a piece of paper and have that done, but rather so that there can de develop a relationship and over time a family resemblance, more and more of a fellowship. You're mine. Part of that process is that we come together, the body of Christ around us, at the Lord's table. We remember the Lord's death until he comes. We come to the foot of the cross together at this table. And by the way, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a member of church here or if this is your first time visiting. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the Lord's table, not the table of Signal Mountain Bible Church. We invite you to partake with us. We'll hold the elements and we'll take them together. But we stand at the foot of the cross. We come to this table on level ground. There, 
the things that divide us, race, financial status, education, family background, job, whatever those are to be put aside. They're not to be part of our lives anyway. Our, our annoyances, our anger with each other, our disagreements are to be put aside and left there. We come to this table with clean hands. So if there's any issue in your life between you and God, as the men are distributing the elements, I'm going to ask you to take that time to meditate and to pray and to do what First John says. Confess your sins before him. Get clean. Come to the table with clean hands so that we remember the Lord until he comes. Meditate on the cross in your life. I'm going to ask the men to come forward.